If you have a Bible, <laughs> if you have a Bible, please join me in John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one in your lap, and we have one to give to you. Uh, raise your hand, and, and we'll get to you eventually. Uh, and when you do get it, join us in John 12. So raise your hand high if you need a Bible. And... Uh, Pastor Andy will bring one to all the hands up. Andy, they're right in their back by the communion elements. Uh, a few announcements I want to draw your attention to uh, before we start the sermon while you're turning to John chapter 12. Just reiterating one, Chad mentioned it. We have a Christmas Eve service this coming Friday, 5.30 to 6. And uh, it'll be an hour uh, focused on singing together, a little thing for the kids, uh, and a uh, short message from myself. The Christmas sermon this year is next Sunday, the one that right following Christmas. Uh, so this morning, as you can tell, we're, we're still in the Gospel of John together. And then the last thing to draw your attention to is that today is the last day we're saying goodbye to our own Sarah Papa John, uh, who is our children's ministry director. Today's her last day, being our director as she and her family are moving down to the valley. And so um, uh, if you see her, thank her and say goodbye to her. Well, with that, um, we are continuing to follow Jesus together. You may have read in my newsletter this week that this is the uh, end of the middle point of the Gospel of John, and we'll be taking a break from the Gospel of John for a number of weeks. Uh, some of the elders and pastors are going to preach in early January, and then when I come back to the pulpit in late January, we're going to start a series on the church and that will go for a number of weeks, and when that's done, we'll return back to the Gospel of John. So just so you are aware of that. Well, what I want to do is go ahead and read John chapter 12, verses 36 to 43, to set God's word before us, pray, and then we'll look to him in his word. So if you would, look along with me in John 12, beginning in um, verse 36. Jesus is speaking, and he says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, our text goes further this morning, but we will pause there and look to the Lord in prayer together. Fathers, we come to you in your word. We come to you both with joy 
and hungry hearts, and also, as we hear what your word says, with trembling hands. And pray, Lord, that as we listen to what you say, you would give us understanding according to your word, that you would correct, you would console, and you would build in our minds a true and accurate picture of who you are, your gospel plan in this world in sending Jesus to become flesh in our place and like us and for our sins and to live and die and rise. Lord, let us see Jesus in you new and unique profound ways this morning and let us understand the mysteries and perplexities that is you. So Lord, to that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and all of God's people said, amen. One of the things that has always captured my heart as a young man is, has been the mountains and mountaineering. And so as a younger guy in my 20s, a little bit less so in my 30s, was able to, to do that quite a bit. And I remember one moment, um, it was a pre-dawn ascent of Mount Hood up outside of Portland, Oregon. And we were out 10,000 feet, ice axes, roped up, we had crampons, the spikes on your shoes, and we had reached a point called the Hogsback, and it was this unique snow feature where you could sit safely and straddle two very steep uh, snow banks, and one descended a couple thousand feet down the mountain and more. And I remember sitting there, catching my breath, and looking out as the sun was beginning to peak behind us, and it casts this shadow over all of Portland, this triangular-shaped shadow from the uh, dormant volcano that we were on climbing. And in that moment, being duly struck by both the sheer beauty of climbing this mountain and the sheer terror of climbing this mountain. It was the beauty of looking at God's creation, declaring his wonders and glories, and seeing how magnificent it was to be up there, and at the same time, how, how utterly powerless I was in sustaining my life. And the moment-by-moment the moment opportunity for an avalanche to break over our heads or to slip and fall, and the sheer terror of the moment. I remember what struck me most then was how much that is like how God reveals himself in Scripture. Scripture speaks of the beauty of God's holiness, so God is the most beautiful being in all of existence, the most attractive um, who exists. And at the same time, he is full of terror in the most good biblical sense of the term. One of the things that we see is that whenever God shows up and, and a human being sees him, in those moments, human beings fall down as dead at his feet because they are confronted with a pure resplendent, shining, glorious God. And so it's the mixture of both those. The, the text that we're coming to this morning is like that. It is both beautiful and it's both terrible. And it's terrible in the best biblical sense of the word. It is sobering and it's a sobering reality that we discover of what God does in this world with human beings. Now, what we've been doing together is we've been following Jesus verse by verse, phrase by phrase, chapter by chapter for now 36 weeks in the Gospel of John. 
And we've been circling now for four weeks at this centerpiece, center point of the Gospel of John. And now we come to this place where John, in these words, not since chapter 1 has John stepped into the text and narrated for us what's going on and helping us understand what is going on. So without further ado, let me set before us the outline this morning as we dig deep into God's word. There's just two points. And really, it's just one gigantic point. But for the sake of taking notes, I'll give you two. And the first one takes up almost the entire time. So point number one, why some believe the gospel and some don't. And that's John verses 12, verses 36 to 43, the passage I just set before us. And then the end of the message is point number two, an invitation to believe in Jesus And that's verses 44 to 50. And so we're going to walk through this verse by verse this morning to see what God is revealing of himself to us in his word. So so number one, why some people believe the gospel and some don't. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, not since chapter 1, and now here at the end of chapter 12, not since chapter 1 has the author of this gospel John stepped into the text to provide long commentary. And John did it in the beginning of chapter 1, and he's doing it again here at the close of Jesus' public ministry as Jesus prepares in chapter 13 to his private ministry with his friends and followers, the disciples, for the upper room conversation. And what John is doing here is John is going to provide a theological explanation for the mass rejection of Jesus. And yet, as as we're told in verse 42, many who believe in Jesus. As with all the biblical authors, John uses scripture to interpret scripture. John uses earlier scripture to explain later scripture. And not just prophetic fulfillment, we're going to see that this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, not just prophetic fulfillment, but also linking the entire biblical narrative, the whole story of the Bible together to understand the big questions of life. Who is God? Who are we? What are we? What is the nature of God's eternal gospel plan, the nature of humans, And specifically, this question, why was Jesus so hated and so rejected by Israel, especially her leaders, and more? John's explanation for why some believe in Jesus and some do not is found, we're seeing here, and by way of summary, John's explanation of why some believe and some don't is found in God's election of some to salvation and his passing over of others in their sin. as both beautiful and terrifying. John's explanation sets in place the compatible truth of human will and responsibility with God's sovereignty and salvation. That's what he's dealing with. So we're going to the core 
of some of these, the hiddenness of God's plan. We're going behind the scenes. We've been watching Jesus on the stage of human history, his interaction with people. We've been seeing him perform signs and be accepted and rejected and more. Now John is pulling back the curtains. We're going behind the scenes to see the director's chair and to see the script of what we see taking place on the stage of, of humanity. Don't press that analogy too far, but it's a way of thinking about what we're seeing this morning. So we're jumping into deep waters, so let's walk through this passage, passage by passage, and take the time we need in order to understand what God's word is revealing to us. So verse by verse, let's begin to walk through this. Look at verse 36 with me. Now verse 36 is split between two sections. It begins with Jesus finishing. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And we looked at that last time together. And now the verse finishes with John stepping in and narrating, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, before John begins to explain the rejection of Jesus by Israel, we see Jesus close his public ministry by, it says, departing and hiding himself. But don't forget the context of where we are. If you uh, maybe need to turn back a page or, or look up to beginning of verse 12, we are at the triumphal entry. We're at the triumphal entry this is when Jesus, the one time in his ministry that he has orchestrated and embraced for the first time and last time of his public ministry, he's orchestrated and embraced the worship of himself as the promised savior king of Israel. But then, once again, and we saw this in detail last time together, Jesus hides himself. Now, up to this point, we saw last time, that the people would be worked up into a frenzy, want to take Jesus and make him king, but Jesus would hide himself because the text would always say, or Jesus would say, his hour was not yet. But now the text tells us his hour had come. And so he's on the colt, he's on the, the donkey, he is going into Jerusalem, and at some point, either he's still on the donkey or he is off and with some friends, but the, the text just continues and Jesus is speaking and now Jesus, his words are echoing in the air while you have the light, believe in the light so you can become sons of light and then he does once again the unexpected, he hides himself, meaning he removes himself from the common crowds. Why? Now it's an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment. And we'll see why. When we get to verse 13, Jesus will be on his knees like a servant, washing the feet of his disciples and then enjoying the Passover meal with them and teaching them many things. But this is an act of judgment where he hides himself. Why does Jesus hide himself? Verse 37. This is now the narrative comment by, the, by John himself and it says, although Jesus had done so many signs before them, the multitudes, the crowds, and in particular the Pharisees and religious leaders. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Okay, so let's pause there, verse by verse. If you were to peek to the last verse 
of this gospel. In John 20, 25, the text acknowledges that if everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did was written down, the world is not big enough for all the books that would be needed for the teachings and miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus performed. But the gospel of John, as John writes the gospel, he organizes this gospel account around seven signs. So there's, a more, there's worlds full of words of Jesus, but here in the gospel of John, we saw in chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. In chapter 4, we saw with the crowds, Jesus healed the official son. In, in chapter 5, we saw Jesus with the crowds, Jesus healing an invalid, a person of 38 years who had not walked, leap up because Jesus healed him. In chapter 6, we saw Jesus take five loaves and two fish and multiply it and feed, it, feed over 10,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. In chapter 9, we saw the sign when Jesus healed a blind man, man blind from birth. In chapter 11, miracle of miracles, we saw Jesus call to Lazarus from the tomb, four days dead. Lazarus come forth and a dead man was made alive by the word of Christ and he walked out of a tomb. That was chapter 11. And the seventh sign we haven't seen yet, but spoiler alert, Jesus is going to die for our sins and raise himself from the grave. The sign of all signs. And that's going to happen in chapter 20. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They, the crowds. In fact, what we have seen as we followed Jesus in these first 12 chapters, over and over, the very signs that Jesus performed, and you need to pause and think about the kindness of God in these signs. Recovering sight from blindness, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, and more. The kindness of God, they only serve to kindle murder in the hearts of those who did not believe. And it's not just the Pharisees, it's the jeering crowds who when Jesus carries his cross through Jerusalem to go up to the top of Golgotha, that it's these crowds themselves who will cheer for Jesus' death. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Belief is the operative word of the Gospel of John. It's an evangelistic book that's calling each of us to believe for the first time and become a follower of Christ or to keep believing in Jesus. And that word belief in Scripture is always our responsibility. It is always human responsibility. God does not believe for us. We are not robots. Scripture's command upon each and every one of us, we are called, we are commanded, we are beckoned, we are beseeched, we are begged, we are invited to renounce sin and believe in the grace of our triune God. So belief in the Bible, your belief, is always tied to your will. What's your will? It's what you want. Your will is, I'm pointing to my heart because that's how the Bible refers to it. Our will is the source and seat of our desires. Though they had seen so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The will of the people was to disbelieve the signs 
of the evidence. It's what they wanted to do. They weren't unbelieving against their will. It was their will. It's very important for you to understand that about how human personhood works. They saw the signs, and it turns out seeing was not believing, and they did not believe. And this biblical reality about belief and your will, so if I was to ask you, why have you believed in Jesus and followed him? You would say, well, I, I, I wanted to. And that's absolutely true. And maybe you're not a follower of Christ, and I would say to you, well, why don't you believe? And you would say, well, I, I don't want to. I, I'm not convinced. Because it's what you want. It's, it's, our, it's our will. So the, the biblical reality of how our will works, our wanting and desiring and our believing, they're connected. Because we can't believe against our will. Right? You can't have a crusade and force converts because it's a matter of the heart and the will and belief. So someone could say something with their lips, but have the opposite be true in their hearts. And this biblical reality is key to understanding the broader details of this passage that we're swimming into. We can't lose sight of this. The Bible is clear. Every person, beginning with myself, outside of Christ, we are a sinner by being children of Adam. It's where we're from. Our first father who sinned and rebelled against God, it's what all of humanity is in Adam. But we are also sinners by nature. It's what we are. We are sinners by practice. It's what we do. We are sinners by choice. It's what we want to do. Even if we do something and then regret that we did it, we did it the first time because we wanted to do it. And we are sinners by God's definition. Why am I pointing this out? There is no such thing as a neutral human being, according to the Bible. We are born in sin. It's our nature. So we don't have this clean slate and then our environment makes us sinners. That's biblically false. We are sinners because of our nature, our constitution as fallen human beings. So when it says, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, it's because they did not want to believe, and it's because they are sinners like you and I. So rejecting Jesus was and is the natural response of every fallen human person. So let me say that again, of what summarizing what the Bible teaches, rejecting Jesus was and is, was and still is, the natural response of every fallen person because it's what they desire. So for example, if you had a microphone and you were on the dusty streets of Jerusalem and you went and interviewed people on the street asking them and you said, Hey, so you've seen all the signs that Jesus did. You've heard all of Jesus' teaching. Maybe you were even there for when he raised Lazarus from the grave. You've even heard Jesus make himself equal to God before Abraham was, I am. You've heard Jesus claim to be God's very son. The signs sure seem to prove Jesus' words. What do you think for tonight's nightly news? And verse 37 is telling us, Everyone's going to reply, nah, fake news. Jesus is false. I don't buy it. Seeing was not believing. 
Because from our vantage point, you should think, if you see someone feed 10,000 people from two tiny fish and five pieces of bread, or make a blind guy see, or even with his words call a guy four days dead from the tomb who was walking around and you could get the testimony of multitudes of people even if you weren't there for it, and people were saying, nah, not true, I don't believe. You know, it's been said that the same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. And in this case, the sun is Jesus Christ and his word and his actions. And some people saw it, and, and don't forget verse 42, many people do believe. But John's emphasis in these early verses is explaining why there's people who are rejecting Jesus. So the same sun that melts the ice, causing people to fall down and raise their hands and say, Lord, I am yours, save me. The same words, the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay. For them, seeing was not believing. Quite the contrary, seeing was enraging. Remember, seeing was enraging. When Lazarus was brought forth from the tomb, that's when the Pharisees decided, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, to kill Jesus. And then they realized, wait a second, Lazarus himself is walking proof of Jesus, raising some from the dead, so let's kill Lazarus also so we can destroy the evidence. But what's happening, what I'm trying to point out here, is that their unbelief was not a neutral, amoral response. Their unbelief was active, it was willful, it's what they wanted, and it was immoral. It was sin, falling short of God's glory. Sin is a personal declaration of war against God. Sin is indifference to God. Meh, I know he says it, I don't care. It's not caring that God exists. It's not bowing the knee and swearing allegiance to the king. So unbelief is immoral, and we are held accountable for that. And they rejected the light and truth of Jesus Christ. Remember his invitation at the beginning of 36. While you have the light, Jesus says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. They did not believe in the light. Why? Look at verse 38. So that, so here's a concluding. Though he had done so many signs before then, they still did not believe in him. So that, so here's a purpose statement. The word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, it's a rhetorical question. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's going on here? So John pulls back the curtain, and he cites right here in verse 38, Isaiah 53, 1. And then in the next two verses, he's going to cite Isaiah 6, 10. John pulls back, and he's appealing to the prophet of Isaiah, Prophet Isaiah, written about 700 years before this textual moment. And he cites 53.1 as being fulfilled in the rejection of Jesus. And then when in the next two verses, he cites Isaiah 6.10 to explain the unbelief of the people. What's going on here? Do you know Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 is the glorious prophecy that a mysterious figure is coming. He will be king. He'll be the promised son of David, but he will also be a suffering servant. 
And the suffering servant will, like a lamb, die and atone for the sins of the people because God will place the sins of the people on him. But the thing is, this good news that God is sending a son of David to atone for sin, this good news would not be believed by the people. No one would believe this was the strong arm of the Lord. In short, in Isaiah's day, if you had time to begin at chapter 1 and just begin to read through the, the prophet Isaiah, the people had broken covenant day by day. They did not want God to be their God. They disregarded God's words. They didn't care about him. Many of them engaged in the sin of syncretism. What's that? That's when you take the parts of the Bible and God that you like, and you get rid of the parts you don't like. And then you go to other religions and take, well, kind of like this and like this, and then you make your own religion in your own image and a false God in your own image. That's what the people of Israel had been doing during that time, and it's still in the hearts of all of us. The people did not want God, his words, his ways. They did not want God's provision of salvation. They wanted to fix it themselves, and they can't. And so just as here, the heart problem remained unchanged, and the people were happy, happy to have it so. They did not believe what they heard, except, of course, verse 42, the remnant chosen by grace. So what we see then is a fulfillment taking place. Rhetorical question. Lord, who has believed our reports? Who's believed the good news of Jesus, even from Jesus' own lips? And the answer of Isaiah 53:1 is nobody, except for those chosen by grace in verse 42. And so we see a fulfillment taking place. So the first appeal that John makes in writing this gospel is the reason Jesus is rejected, the reason that the Pharisees and religious leaders and the people are going to grab him and illegally try him and then put him on the cross and kill him is because it's fulfilling what God's gospel plan has been all along, that it would be their desire to put God, the God-man to death. But then, verses 39 and 40, underneath the people's willful rejection of God, listen to this, is God's rejection of them. Underneath, undergirding, the people's willful rejection of God is God's rejection of them. Look at verses 39 and 40. Here's another concluding statement. Therefore, so, so let's put this together. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, close quote. Therefore, verse 39, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, Here's 6.10, Isaiah 6.10, verse 40. He, the Lord, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Remember what I said at the beginning, beautiful and terrible in the best, terrifying, as it were, in the best sense of the word. What is going on here? Here's what we see for the people. Back in verse 36 and verse 37, verse 37, they still don't, did not believe. The people were simultaneously unwilling to believe. Remember the microphone on the street. 
hey, you saw all Jesus' signs. Why aren't you believing? Because I don't want to. I don't believe. They were personally responsible. They were unwilling to believe because they didn't want to. But now we see underneath that, they were unable to believe because God hardened them. Look at verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. So in verse 37, there's the personal will. They were unwilling to believe, even though they saw the signs, ability, uh, or, or, or will rather. And in verse 39, now we have ability. They cannot. They are unable to believe. And it says, he has blinded their eyes, verse 40, and hardened their heart. And here is another crux. Here is something else that we need to see as we're beginning to understand what in the world is God doing here. Because don't we have John 3, 16 lingering in our ears? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish eternally but have everlasting life? Absolutely. But two verses later, he says, those who don't believe are condemned already. But what's going on? Here's another crux. A crux. I've already pointed out how in the Bible, our, our desires, our will, are tied to our beliefs. We can't believe against our will. Here's another crux in this passage. You need to recognize that God is not causing them to sin. He's not sinning for them. He is not unbelieving on their behalf. What do I mean? God is leaving them where they already are. So in those earlier points, the Bible declares that we are all fallen, we are all already blind, we are all already hardened, we don't believe unless God intervenes, we are sinners by nature, practice, and choice, we fall short of the glory of God, etc., etc. And so what God is doing here is God is leaving them where they already are and where they want to be. God is leaving them where they already are in their sin and where they want to be. Sinners don't want their sin removed. It's a very important thing to remember for those of you who are believers before. Now, we can have earthly guilt. We can see consequences of bad choices that we've made, foolish choices, and more. But when God is blinding them and hardening them, we can't forget that they are already blind and already hard hearts. For example, John cites Isaiah 6.10 to explain what's going on here. So let me read Isaiah 6, 1 through 10. So let's jump back, Isaiah 6.10. Why is he quoting this passage? Isaiah writes about 700 years before this moment, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood two seraphim. Or above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, these angelic creatures. Verse 3 and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Pause. How would you respond? Isaiah has this vision. He is brought to the throne room of God. He hears, he hears this particular species of angel it's crying across the room. There is smoke and there is shaking. And how does Isaiah respond? Verse 5, he, and I said, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response is repentance when he sees the Lord. Woe is me. He sees his sin. He knows his people's sin. And all he does is cry out. And when he says, woe is me, it's very strong language in the Hebrew, that essentially that he thinks that he is damned because he sees God. But verse 6 in Isaiah 6, Then one of the seraphim, these angelic creatures, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Verse 8, And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And the Lord said, go and say to this people, the people of Israel, Isaiah 6, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. End of text. John says this moment in Isaiah 6 is being fulfilled in the, in the rejection of Jesus. <clears throat> Did you notice how Isaiah responded when he saw God on the throne? Isaiah responded the exact opposite way the people of Israel were responding to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, walking among them, healing people, teaching them the good news, and more. Isaiah's response should have been prototypical of how we all respond in seeing the Lord, falling on our knees and crying out for forgiveness, but instead, it hardened the people's hearts. Seeing God on his throne was for Isaiah, also for him to see his own sin and his fallenness. It cultivated humility in his heart. He recognized that he fell short of the glory of God, and the only solution to his problem was God himself. God, unless you fix me, unless you rescue me, I won't be fixed, and I won't be rescued. So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent the seraphim to atone for his sin, touching his lips with the coal. And this then led to Isaiah's salvation, which led to his mission, to go to an unbelieving people, the book of Isaiah, whom God would harden, 6.10 says, in their unbelief. So this is called a judicial hardening. The people were already hardened. And what we don't, the perspective is, for centuries, the people of Israel have been breaking covenant, disobeying God, 
not caring about him, indifferent and uncaring to his word and his ways, spurning his kindness, and more and more, and looking to other gods instead, and God would send prophet after prophet after prophet, calling them to repentance, and they never repented. And so God then hardens them in their sin. It's the right response to their continual rejection. Now, to underscore this idea, to see how important this is, Isaiah 6.10, which is quoted here in John 12, is not only cited in John 12, but Isaiah 6.10 in this judicial hardening of God is also in Matthew 13. It's also in Mark 4. It's also in Luke 8. Luke, Luke 8. It's also in Acts 28, and it's also cited in Romans 11.8. That is six direct New Testament citations, not even counting allusions to this verse, Isaiah 6.10. In other words, it's very important to God. God only needs to say something once. But when the Spirit-filled, Jesus-inspired authors of the New Testament keep going back to Isaiah 6.10 to explain what's going on with the rejection of Jesus, it's very important. In other words, Isaiah 6.10 and God hardening and blinding people who were already hardened and blind is one of the most cited Old Testament passages in the New Testament because it's what the Bible teaches. The language of Scripture, the big idea, is that God elects some to salvation, but he leaves or he passes over or he hardens others already in their sin. Once again, the language of the Bible is that God elects some to salvation, but then he leaves or passes over or hardens others where they're already at in their sin. Here's where a a quote from old Spurgeon comes to mind. He was preaching a sermon on the doctrine of election, and this is what he says. If there were no other text in the sacred word except this one, I think we should all be bound to receive and acknowledge the truthfulness of the great and glorious doctrine of God's ancient choice of his family. But there seems to be a chronic prejudice in the human mind against this doctrine. Although most other doctrines will be received by professing Christians, some with caution, others with pleasure, yet this one seems to be most frequently disregarded and discarded because this is the one that most naturally grates against our sensibilities. And so what people, when you hear this text, you read it in your devotional reading, here's one error that you can fall into. The error is to think that God is a moral monster. That God's a moral monster for not saving everyone and leaving some of their sins and hardening them in their sins. Or another error is to twist these words to say what they're not saying. And to think that God is not sovereign over salvation, but to think that people are. So as to get God off this difficult hook. The thing is, there is no hook that God needs to be removed from. Again, remember humanity outside of Christ. Fallen and depraved. 
not neutral. There's no such thing as a neutral human being. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us on our own are naturally against God. Whereas election to salvation results from God's grace. I'm going to make a distinguishing here because they're not the same. Whereas election to salvation results from God's grace, being left in our sin or being hardened results from God's justice. It's the right thing for him to do. Right? The shock of the Bible is why are anyone saved? That should be the most important question on our lips. Why would a good, holy, loving God save people who hate him? So the result of salvation is God's grace. The re result of hardening is God's justice. The cause of election resides in God. The blame of hardening is within the sinner because it's the just due. So election and hardening aren't the same. They're not two sides of the same coin. You can't think of it that way. Even so, this text is clear. God is active in different ways in both groups, saving some, hardening others, because they're already hardened. Let's keep going to try to understand this. A key difference, listen to this, please. A key difference here is that God saves the elect against their will, but he hardens those according to their will. Let me, let me explain that. I told you at the beginning that our belief is tied to our will. Now, I'm playing with words here. When it says, when I say that God saves the elect against their will, he has to change our will. And then we believe on our own accord freely because it's what we want to do. We're not robots, okay? That's why John 3, you can go back and listen to that message, Jesus himself teaches that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So we have to be born again, then we can see. Jesus says in the same passage, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're first born again. So you must be born again or regenerate, then you can see, then you can enter. So what happens is God has to give us a new heart with a new will than we want to believe. And what God does is he hardens the sinner in keeping with their will. It's what they want. For example, John 3. I quoted verse 16 earlier that we all know, many of us know, but listen to verses 18 through 20. Jesus continues, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Another way scripture speaks of God hardening and blinding unbelievers who again are already blind and already hardened, is God giving people over to their sin for more sin. Giving them more to what they want. Do you remember Pharaoh? Have you read the book of Exodus? Pharaoh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but God was also, when he hardened Pharaoh, 
he was hardening Pharaoh, not against Pharaoh's will, but according to Pharaoh's will. It's what Pharaoh wanted. I keep hammering this because we have a notion in our minds that God does things against people's will, that Pharaoh really was an innocent bystander who just really got a bad rap because God chose to harden his heart. That is false. You have to understand what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a fallen human to understand this because you will mischaricature God and misunderstand who God is. If you go to Romans 1 and read Romans 1, it speaks of the same concept where although people knew God, they suppressed the truth and did not honor as God, and they worship and serve the creatures rather than the creator. And so what does God do? It says that he gives them over to the lusts of their flesh. Fine. If that's what you want, here you go. God gives them, he releases them. He's no longer restraining them in their sin because part of what the Bible teaches regarding our sin is we're not as sinful as we can be. God restrains human evil. So he gives them over to more and more evil. So now you, you hear this, and Scripture anticipates our questions. Scripture even anticipates our accusations against God by saying, this is unjust for you, God, to harden hard people already in their sins or to blind, even further, blind people in their sins. This is unjust, it's unfair that you, God, elect some people to salvation but then pass over other people. Because no matter your position on how God saves, all Christians know and confess that God does not save everybody. Right? Remember last time, that's the heresy of universalism? So we all must account for why God chooses not to save all of humanity. And so scripture anticipates our um, even revulsion to this biblical teaching. And what God does, like a good father, is he puts us in our place in a kind way, but in a stern way. And the answer that God gives to these questions is in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 to 24. This very same argument. Listen to Romans 9, 11 to 24. I'd invite you to turn there with me and see with your own eyes what God's word says. Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 11, it says, Although they, Jacob and Esau, the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans, and he's looking back and he's thinking about God's saving some and passing over others. And so Paul anticipates the arguments that his hearers will hear, and this is how he responds. Although they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born, they were twins in the womb. Although they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up so that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, then you'll say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist God's will? And here's the depth of the answer. Who are you, verse 20, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from Gentiles. And that is the limit of the revelation that God chooses to give to us to answer this question. In God's mysterious ways, he does not answer more than probably what we would want. This is it. I'm reminded of Job. God allowing and permitting all the suffering to come into Job's life and all those long chapters of his horrible friends trying to convince Job he must have sinned God and done, sinned against God and done something bad. But at the end, when, God, when Job is crying out for God to give an answer, God's answer to Job is not why God brought this difficulty into Job's life, Rather, God's answer to Job is to give Job greater revelation of who God is. Meaning, it's at this point at the heart of the matter, what is required is faith and trust on our part and to look to the rest of revelation of who God is, to remember who he is, that he is not a moral monster. For example, for example, let me give you four things that you must embrace other biblical realities that intersect and buffet this biblical reality. Number one, four realities. Number one, Scripture never, never, ever, ever pits God's sovereignty against human responsibility. Never. Theologians call this doctrine of compatibilism. Why? Because Scripture presents them as compatible. God's sovereignty and salvation and human agency and responsibility are compatible with one or the other rather than pitted against each other. They're not presented as two bound sides of a coin like, uh, like a yin-yang. That's not true. God's always in charge. But people are fully responsible for the free choices they make in keeping with their will, and God is fully responsible in his sovereignty. So they're not, human responsibility is not an illusion, which leads to number two. Scripture never paints a picture of what is called fatalism, that we are just robots. But instead, Scripture presents us as morally responsible agents who always do what we want to do most and are happy to do it. And we do all things in keeping with our wills. We're happy to do it and we're responsible for it. So the idea of a charge to say, well, that just says we're robots is a false charge and not careful handling of Scripture. Number three, Scripture presents God as hardening or 
passing over people, not arbitrarily or because they're innocent. And that's, what, that's where we always wrongly go. But because people want it, God is doing to them what they want most. They're already condemned. He gives people what they've already chosen. That's the difference between election to salvation and passing over. Passing over is leaving them where they are and making them more of what they already are. Election is actually making them what they're not, new creation and saved. But most importantly, when you hear this, as I have wrestled personally across years with understanding what does this mean, and when you, it's as if I hear something, I hear these words, and it's like a wrecking ball into my entire knowledge of God and what Scripture says. It's easy to forget or to merely go to extremes, but it's this God who says this in Isaiah 6.10 is the same God who invented the cross for himself. Lest we charge God with being unjust or lest we think God is a moral monster, we may not understand how this doctrine works Man is fully responsible. The call to salvation is genuine, true. You must repent and believe to be saved, and God saves. And then that's kind of where it stops. And God says, that's as much as I'm going to tell you about how it works. We cannot forget the cross. We can, we may not know how this doctrine works, but we can know how the cross works. We can see a God who became flesh to move towards us in our sin, to move toward you in your sin, to move toward you in your shame, to move toward you in your suffering. We can remember that this is a God who clothed himself and humbled himself by becoming a man to save us, to rescue us, to love us. That's the election of God and the God who also hardens, the same God who became human. God has not chosen to reveal how all of this works, but God has chosen to call us to trust and obey and to believe. God has revealed himself in the person of his son to know what God is like, not a moral monster, but gentle and lowly. A savior who has come to seek and save the lost, to rescue the downtrodden, the brokenhearted, and those trapped in sin and oppressed by the devil. If you want to be rescued and saved, come to Jesus. That's what this is. And if you don't come to Jesus right now, the answer is why not? It's because you don't want to. Friend, come to Jesus and be saved. That is a genuine invitation. But we must move on. Verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is a hidden and profound passage. Who is Isaiah seeing, does this text say? Isaiah said these things because he saw, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. But look up in your passage, look up in in John 12 and see the last referent is Jesus Christ. It's at middle of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he, and trace all the he's and him's, he's and him's, he's and him's. When Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory, and spoke of Jesus. The end of verse 36 tells us it's Jesus who he's seeing in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he was seeing the second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate, seated on the throne. This should not surprise us, but it is astounding. 
This also means that the words of Isaiah 6 is Jesus speaking. They're red letter. The pre-incarnate Son of God speaking Isaiah 6.10 to explain this moment in John 12. But the subtle irony and imagery here is that Isaiah saw the Son of God high and lifted up on a throne, but John is preparing us to see the Son of God high and lifted up and thrown on a cross in our place. Verse 42, Nevertheless, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John makes clear that there were many who did believe in Jesus, even among the religious leaders, but fear of man and wanting the glory of man kept them hidden. So in this complex section of John, John is pausing the narrative of his gospel account not only to close Jesus' public ministry, but now these words of John 12 cast a shadow back across the first 12 chapters to understand why so much hatred and rejection of Jesus. It explains to us biblically and theologically from the Old Testament why people refuse Jesus and why they're about to kill him a few days from now. God's plan of salvation is mysterious and hidden. He loves the world, so he gave his only son. But before we move to the final brief point, let me give you three more implications of the doctrine of election. Three more implications. Number one, the doctrine of election comforts us in our doubt. Why do I say that? You might come in here. You hear these words And you only get anxiety and fear because you wonder, what if I am the person that God is hardening? The doctrine of election comforts us in our doubt. If you're a person who worries over whether you're elect or not, please be comforted that only the elect worry about being elect. It's humorous and utterly true and we always forget. Because when we become saved by Jesus and are given new hearts and have new wills and our desires to believe and love our Savior, we also now see our sin for the first time for what it really is. And we see the sinfulness of our sin. We want that sin off, and we begin to then look at the sin in our life and use that to say, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm a false convert. Maybe I'm not real because I see these things, friends, Someone who is blind and hardened in their sin doesn't care about their sin and don't worry about the elect being elect and they don't worry about displeasing God. So this doctrine is utterly comforting to us because we recognize that when we worry about having too much sin and we want to please God and we want to follow him but wonder if we don't because of our sin, it shows that we're actually converted and saved Praise God for the mysterious application of the doctrine of election. Those in their sin don't want to be elect. They don't worry about it. This is why it can comfort us. Number two, the doctrine of election humbles us because we recognize we cannot in any way take any credit for any part of our salvation, neither earning it 
nor deserving it. There is no boasting because we have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that none may boast. Only God gets the glory for bringing us from death to life and darkness to light. And third, the doctrine of election motivates us to evangelism. It is an utterly shameful and false character to say that this doctrine denies the need for evangelism. Of all the people on all the earth who believe the doctrine of election, we should be the most profound evangelists because God will save his elect. That's why Paul said he endures all things for the sake of the elect because God told him, I've got many people in this city, so keep up the work. Keep up the work. God's patience was revealed through the prophets in their own lives given over to evangelism, not just once, but decades upon decades. Listen, in God's mysterious plan, we don't know who he's going to save. We don't know when he's going to save them, but we know he saves. Our job as his children is to be faithful. God's job is to be fruitful. Our faithfulness is to go make disciples of all nations, proclaiming the gospel, and to prayerfully trust God's purposes and process that he often uses. God typically uses years of evangelism, and he so often uses multitudes of people, not just you, but his body, the church, to evangelize a person. And at some point, whether it's in their 90s on their deathbed or, or nine on grandpa's knee, they hear the gospel and they get saved. So this is not fatalistic. This is motivating. The doctrine of election ensures God's people will be saved and you will never, ever, ever fail in your evangelism. Which leads to the last point. Super brief. You need to believe, and we need to keep believing. Look at verses 44 to 50. This is an invitation to believe in Jesus. Jesus cried out and said, so here, this is what this is like. Jesus has just hidden himself. The end of season one is closed. This, the screen has gone black. The credits are rolling, and there's a voiceover of the main character, Jesus, once again preaching the gospel to you. Even though he's hidden himself, his word is still echoing across scripture. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Do you want that? If anyone hears my words, Jesus says in verse 47, and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. These words right now that I'm reading, at the last day at the great white throne judgment, these words will echo once again to judge those who hear it and refuse to believe. Verse 49, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me, Friends, recognize in verse 45, to see Jesus is to see the Father. 
verse 49. To hear Jesus is to hear the Father. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. And to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. Jesus' first advent was to seek and save the lost. Jesus' second advent, his true triumphal entry, he will return to deal with rebels and unbelievers by righteously judging them and physically establishing his kingdom with his people. The day is coming soon. The question is, what team will you be on? Where will you be? Will you be submitting and bowing and believing to this good king who has lived in our place and died and rose in our place? Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, his call to you today is to believe, to turn from your sins and receive his free salvation that he has worked for you because you can't work for it. There's nothing you can do. In fact, Ezekiel 33.11, here's God's invitation to you. Listen to God's perspective on the wicked perishing. Ezekiel 33.11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, says the Lord God Almighty. That's his heart. So friend, I say to you, if you don't follow Jesus, why, why will you not turn from your wicked ways and receive his grace? And for those of us who do believe, we're to marvel and wonder and to tremble and rejoice at the godness of God and his splendor, to rejoice at the mystery of God and salvation, to treasure our security in Christ, to live for Jesus, to be motivated by his grace and his gospel, to never give up and never stop calling others to the grace only found in Jesus who worked for us, calling people to salvation. That's what we keep believing. We hear a sermon like this and we marvel on our knees with humble hearts, God, thank you for saving me. Here I am, send me. Amen? Lord, here we are, send us. Lord, I pray that you would help us believe and receive all that your word says and shower us in your kindness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.